Welcome to our first uh, class of the summer, studying the Apostles' Creed. Glad to have you guys with us. Just so everybody's aware, I think you may be, but um, we teach this class two times a week. So it will happen every Sunday morning at this time here at the church. And then there is a Wednesday night at 7 version that takes place at the table uh, near campus. So um, we do the two halves, and, and so you have, the, you have the option to choose between the two, or if you are serving on a fit team or something one Sunday and miss, and you want to come catch the, uh, the second one or the, yeah, the second session on Wednesday, you can do that and, and come be a part of that one, or we'll also be recording these so you can catch up that way. But I'm um, glad you guys are with us to do this. You don't uh, realize it probably, but we, we might be making history today. Um, in that we are probably, we might be the first Restoration Movement church ever to teach a whole class on the Apostles' Creed. Um, that's right. Uh, uh, I know at one point the youth group actually did it here, but they, I think they were following kind of the Matt Chandler series. So this might be the first time ever in a Restoration Movement. And for those of you guys who don't even know what I'm talking about when I say a Restoration Movement church, and, and why this is crazy for a Restoration Movement church. Uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit. We'll start talking about some of the history of it. But I, I want to actually start by letting you discuss this at your tables. Um, kind of a, a few questions for you to think through. The first one is this. What was, if you grew up in church, what was your church's stance on creeds? When, when you grew up, did you grow up in a church where, they, where you recited the Apostles' Creed or something along those lines? Each week in church, was that a part of the service? Were you a part of church that you never did anything with? It was your only introduction to the creeds, uh, a Rich Mullins song when you were a kid or something like that? Like, and, and, and did your church, if, if your church had a stance one way or the other, do you know why it had a stance one way or the other? Do you know why they did it? Like our church, uh, our movement, just, you know, like I said, we'll get into it, did it just, well, we don't really do the creeds. Our, our movement is anti-creed. It was based on being everything opposite of what the, what the creeds are. And so, and so, do you know why? And then here, here would be the question. Okay, so the next question, after you, after you answer about your own church, what reason might there be for a church to be anti-creed? Why would some churches go, we don't want to talk about this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to have this a part of ours. And what might be the benefit? All right, so... Talk about your own church history and then ask, what would be the cons? Why wouldn't a church do this? And what would be the pros? What, what would be the benefits of doing that? So take a few minutes to do that, and then, uh, and then we'll get into our lesson. Do you need one of these? Now let me go make a copy real quick. I'll get... Yeah, let me make some copies.
Well, you speak in tongues. All right, take another take another 60 seconds to wrap up.
Okay. I want to uh, I want to jump in here with a little bit of history, just to just to kind of um, set the stage for how we got to where we did on on creeds. And so we'll we'll march back a couple hundred years, and we'll march back a couple thousand years, just to give us an understanding. So our movement, for those of you who didn't know what I meant when I said the Restoration Movement. Um, that is churches that are in the vein of the Christian church, or and then we would also add the Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ. All three of these churches um, come from the same origin, come from the same movement, and they were birthed in the early 1800s in the middle of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, that was kind of moving from Europe into America and launching out over into America, and, and in some ways... Um, our movement kind of made that move as some of our founders came out of Scotland. And, but it wasn't until they were really in America that, that they began to really express some of these beliefs and started to make some of these statements. Um, so this movement came at a time and place where Christianity had pervasive influence. Like in America during this time, um, almost everybody knew the basics of Christianity. Even if everybody wasn't a Christian, that's why the Second Great Awakening was taken off, because people had kind of gotten away from actually following Jesus. Second Great Awakening was, was seeing that begin to change, and, and massive amounts of people were starting to come back to the gospel. And so there's more kind of a religious mindset in the country at this time than before. But even before then, um, people knew the Bible by and large. They, they grew up in a country where, where everyone kind of understood to some degree the basic truths of Christianity. And so the question for people back then was not whether or not you believed things about the Bible or whether or not you had faith, but what kind of faith, what form of faith did you have? And so there were all kinds of different uh, creeds and statements of belief to designate which category you fit in, whether that was the Westminster Confession or the Philadelphia Confession, or the Cambridge Platform, or, and you could just go on and on. And, and every little denomination, or every branch of every denomination, had their own specific creed, or catechism, or statement of faith that designated us and separated us from them. And, and that became a very big and important thing. And so uh, you, you would have people kind of going around and going, so are you a Baptist? Okay, well, what kind of Baptist? Okay, a Philadelphia Confession Baptist? Because if, if you're a Baptist but not a Philadelphia Confession Baptist, then we can't be friends. Um, then you're not in. You're not part of the people. And, and this was very true uh, in a lot of different areas. And so there were these guys, kind of the, the three main people. I guess there's a fourth one. Um, but the three main people who kind of get thrown in here are a guy by the name of Barton Stone, out of Kentucky, and then Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell, who really take, becomes kind of the main driving force. Thomas and Alexander come out of Scotland. Barton Stone is in Kentucky, I believe. And, and they start to look around and go, this is crazy. Uh, this is crazy to see people who agree on essentially almost everything, but there's this this creed that was developed 200 years ago, and because when this creed was written, these people had a specific interpretation on something, and if you don't go exactly with that interpretation, then we're not brothers. That's crazy. They said, we, we agree on like 95% of everything, so why are we letting these man-made interpretations of things designate who I will treat as a brother or not? who I will have fellowship with or communion with or not. And, and so they began to come to this idea, we ought to go back to what they would sometimes term primitive Christianity. That is, let's go back before all the church tradition. Let's go back before these different um, councils came up with documents. Let's go back before these different creeds, before these different schools and interpretations, and let's just go back to the Bible and just say, what were they doing back then? What were they confessing back then? How, were, how was their church operating back then? 
and let's try to do that. That's why for, um, like, if you go to a restoration school, um, Bible school, like, like Ozark, where, where I went, um, Acts is a very big class. Everyone is required to, to take the book of Acts. It used to be a two-semester-long course. Is it one now? Yeah, it's one, and it's going to be only three. See, they're, they're weakening in there. Uh, um, like back then, like it was two semesters. Every freshman is required to take the book of Acts, and it takes two semesters to get through it because this is how, if we're going to send you out to be a minister, um, then, then we are going to have to, like, you need to know the book of Acts because that's what we want you to base your church on is we're going back to the way that things were. And, and over time, they developed this, this new kind of system or this, I'm sorry, trying to be an old system. They rejected all creeds, all traditions, and all theological systems that the church had developed over time and decided we'll just focus on Christ. In fact, this was the motto, no creed but Christ which is in itself sort of a creed, but um, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. That's, that's what we're about. And by the way, actually, there is, I mean, I grew up in this, and there is something beautiful about it, and, I, and, and there is something that I really love about that and, and something that has been really beneficial. Our, again, back to kind of what, what Ozark teaches as kind of a restoration class has historically been what, what we would say biblical theology rather than systematic theology. So we don't teach a class on the Holy Spirit, where we go, Holy Spirit, let's kind of draw different texts from all over the Bible and talk about the Holy Spirit. We go, we're going to teach you about Acts, and we'll see what the book of Acts says about the Holy Spirit. We're going to teach you about Galatians, and we'll see what Galatians says about the Holy Spirit, because we don't want to systematize and get all these ideas from everywhere else before. We we can do that, but first we want to go, what does the Bible say? And I love that. but there are some who would say, and I've over the last five, six years kind of started to, to actually see this, um, that when the Restoration Movement decided to, to get rid of all the creeds, that they were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, that is, that they were, taking, they were taking something beautiful in the creeds, and what they were trying to get rid of was the misuse of the creeds, the abuse of the creeds, which was they were right to do so. Um, but they, in the process, they got rid of something that, that potentially was very helpful and very beautiful, something that had helped the church for a very long time. And, and so um, to, to understand why they're helpful and why they're beautiful, that's where we need to go back even further to the 100s, to the second century A.D., and the original story for the Apostles' Creed, so this was, I say the original, I, we, we think it was started in like the 6th century, this idea, how the Apostles' Creed came about. And, and what, what had been told for like hundreds of years was, uh, on the weekend of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is still kind of sitting on the Apostles, and He's inspiring them. And so they kind of sat down together, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like each Apostle kind of contributed a line or two to this Creed. So they're just sitting there around the room, and all of a sudden, Peter's kind of like, you know what, guys? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And, and then John is like, yeah, and I believe in Christ the Son. And they kind of go through this, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they kind of develop this whole thing, which is kind of funny. If you, if you read through all the way to the end, and to the, then Matthias was just left with life everlasting, amen. So he only got like two <laughs> words of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And they were sort of assumed, and so, you know, Philip was like, I already said resurrection from the dead, Matthias, so we didn't even need your inspiration. But that was kind of the, that was like the, that was the understanding for a long time. That, truthfully, that's, that's not how, even though that'd be kind of like cinematically kind of cool to see them sitting around the room developing this, that's not how it came about. It came about, um, has its origins, as I said, in the second century at least, maybe a little bit earlier than that, as, as sort of an instrument of evangelism. Um, for non-Jewish inquirers. So for Gentiles, this was kind of how they would help you come to faith. Think about what it would have been like to preach the gospel in the first and second century world, particularly the Gentile world, somewhere not around Israel, somewhere not around Jews. When you go into Corinth, when you go into Ephesus, when you go into Rome, you, you are talking to a lot of people that do not start from the same place as many of us start, even, even non-Christians in America, uh, for, as where they start their, their level of understanding. This is a mass, this is a population of people that do not know that there's only one God, 
as opposed to many, that do not know that this one God created everything. They do not know simple things like having sex with a prostitute is not a proper form of worship. They do not know that God had promised a Messiah. They didn't even know to think about or look for something like that. They do not know that, um, what a church is, what that word is as it is defined in Scripture. They don't know that resurrection is a thing, physical resurrection, and most of them would not desire it. And they don't know that one day people will face judgment. So they don't, they don't think of like a, a last day when things will all happen. Um, and this and a ton of other things. Now imagine that a canon has not yet been established, so we don't yet have like a New Testament of books to say these are what you need to study. If you, not that those books weren't out in existence. It's just that the church hadn't gotten all together yet and said these are the ones you can trust. Um, so um, they were there, and a lot of churches had them, but they didn't have all of them. Like you might have Matthew but not Luke. Or you might have the book of John, but you don't have the book of Romans. And so you're, it's expensive. These scrolls, it's expensive to have books of the Bible. And so your church may only have a handful of them. And even if you do, there's only a few people in your church who can even read anyway. And so you have all these people who have, like, they are starting from square zero when it comes to trying to figure out what the Christian faith is, and there's, they don't have these documents in front of them to just figure this all out. And at the exact same time, as, as Christianity is spreading to these different, time, uh, these different places, right on the heels of it are all these little subgroups that are taking Christianity and then twisting it with a Greek Platonic flavor, or twisting it with a Jewish flavor, or twisting it with an anti-Jewish, with an anti-Semitic flavor, and trying to say, this is what Christianity really is. And so you've got all this. How do you make sure that people, when they come to faith, that they're coming to the actual Christian faith? And how do you know when this guy over here on this side of Corinth comes to faith and decides he wants to be a Christian, that he's actually believing and affirming the same thing that uh, this guy on this side of Corinth is believing and affirming, or even more than that, that this guy in Ephesus is believing and confirming. How do you know that all these churches are on the same page if there are all these other groups who are trying to come in and teach things, and it's hard to have scriptures um, at hand to be able to teach all of those things? Um, how do you help inquirers and new, un, and new converts understand what the Christian faith actually is? That is the question, and this was the purpose of the creeds. Um, those who were interested in becoming Christians would use the Apostles' Creed or the early origins of it as a syllabus for their teaching. Like you would have to go through, uh, back then a lot of times, you couldn't just say, hey, I want to be a Christian. Like, All right, come on up, we'll baptize you. It was like, no, 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 there's a lot of work for us to undo here. There's a lot of things you need to know. And so to become a Christian, you would come to the church and you'd begin attending, and they would put you through a catechism for like months and years. I'm not even saying I totally agree with it, but there's something too where they're going, there's so much we have to work with. There's so much we have to undo. And so they would go through like years of learning the basics behind what the Apostles' Creed are. And then when they got baptized, oftentimes that new convert as a, as a sign that they are agreeing with the faith that everyone else in here agrees with would actually actually recite the Apostles' Creed when they were getting baptized. And it was, it was a statement that said, I'm, I, I agree with all of you guys, and it was a statement of, I am all in. This is what I'm getting baptized into. Not that Gnostic teaching over there, not the Marcionite teaching, teaching over there, but to, but to the, the, the faith that was handed down to us from the Apostles themselves. And so that's, that becomes the importance of this. Um, there are many who see creeds as being boring, and rigid at best, divisive at worst, as they get in the way of us. But here's the question, okay? I believe that they were divisive in the 1800s. I believe maybe that the Campbells and Stones, that they, they may have actually been doing the right thing in the 1800s when they tried to drop a lot of them, or at least they were, they were on the right track. In the, in the climate that they were living and what the creeds were doing at that time, they may have probably been on the right track. But here's the question. Which culture, the 1800s in America, when everyone kind of has a real decent understanding of Christianity and, and everyone's kind of in that direction, or the 100s in the ancient Mediterranean world where very, very few people have very little knowledge of the scriptures and what it means, which of these cultures do you think ours is moving closer to right now? 
Uh, we were in Spain last week, and uh, uh, was it last week? I'm all mixed up. Two weeks, something like that. A, a week and a half ago, we were in Spain, and we were sitting there talking with one of the campus ministers who's, who's started this campus ministry there, trying to reach Spanish students with the gospel. He was talking about how Spain is 0.4% uh, like Bible-believing Christian, evangelical Christian. Um, 77, 73% Catholic, something like that. But yeah, but, but only of the 77% Catholic, only like 15% of those people even like go to mass regularly. And so people are kind of Catholic in name, but almost nobody knows anything about the gospel. And, and Protestantism is viewed almost as this kind of like cult-like thing that's kind of weird and creepy. And, and he said, we weren't even talking about this yet. We were just sitting there, and, and we, we, we didn't even mention that we were going to be teaching a class on this. But he said, you know, a lot of people look back, and he specifically mentioned the Apostles' Creed. A lot of people look at the Apostles' Creed as like something that's kind of boring and rigid. But he said, but I can see living in a culture like this, the value of that. I can see in a culture where people don't know these basic things, the value of being able to summarize in like a page form, this is what the Christian faith is. This is what the Bible is all about. And, and, you know, you have heard, and it is true probably for, for some time, that the way Europe has gone is the way America is trending in a lot of ways. Um, I don't say that it is any, any sort of weird doom and gloom thing. I think the church is going to do well here and do fine. But I, I do believe that we are going to, when people are going to be coming to faith in America, they're going to be coming to faith like those Gentiles in Corinth in the first century. Not like Bible Belt Christians in the eight, or Bible Belt you know Christians in name in the 1800s who already have the background. You're going to be talking with a bunch of people who don't know these things, and so um, this is the value and importance of these creeds. And so we're going to get into it. I'm going to have a little bit less time to kind of do uh, the full teaching, talking today on, on these things, just because we had to spend some time introducing it. Um, but before we do it, we're going to do something that might be uncomfortable for you, depending on how deep your restoration roots are. Um, but I actually, I, I want to grab this creed. I want us to recite this out loud together. Um, we're about to do something that the church has done for 2,000 years, even if our movement has not. Um, this is something that around the world people have been doing um, for thousands of years. And so um, I, I don't know if we'll do this every week. That'll be kind of up to whoever's teaching that week. But I, I just thought as we start off this summer, I'd love to, to recite this. I'll try to lead us with the pace here. I'll try to make sure we get a little bit of pause here so we can stick together. We'll see. This could be chaos, but we're going to give it our best shot. All right? Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Alexander Campbell just rolled in his grave just now, guys. Um, we actually did fairly good, though. I was, I was impressed with us. We stayed on task. We stayed on those things. Um, this is, I think, a good summary of what the Bible is and what, what the Christian faith and what the gospel is. Um, Packer talks about in this book, um, this is affirming the Apostles' Creed. And if you want to do a little extra study, this is short and sweet. Each chapter is four or five pages, and it, it's following kind of the same pattern as, as we will, taking a sentence and breaking it down. Really good. He says, though, one of the, one of the things that got kind of crazy is, is in like the 1900s, as, you know, faith was dwindling a little bit and we started to try to regain this fire for evangelism and this passion for evangelism, the question was, how do we get the gospel out to as many people as we can? And, and in order to do that through things like tracts and through things like um, being able to preach to people quick on the side, one of the questions that began to be asked was, what is the least a person has to know in order to be able to become a Christian? Like what, what, because I've only got, I've got a tract this big and I've got to fit it on there. And so the ABCs um, to what, like acknowledge your sin and 
something, be repentant, and then C, confess Christ as Lord, something like that, right? Or believe. Maybe the B is believe. Believe. That makes sense. Um, and so these three, so what is the list? And, and, and Packer said, man, that was, we, we never asked the question, is this a good question to be asking? How little do I have to teach someone for them to become a Christian? That's, that's not a good question to be asking. And that has consequences for it, it, it makes it easier and simpler to get somebody into the baptistry or to get somebody to ask Jesus into their heart. It gets much harder for them to live out a vibrant faith based on the least amount they can possibly know to become a Christian. Um, and that's why something like this, uh, I'd say the least amount you need to know is a summary of the whole Bible. That is the least amount you need to know um, to be able to become a Christian. And that's why, what makes this big deal. So I'm going to try to move through this first statement here. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And, and each week we're going to talk about what do we mean when we confess these words. When we say that, what are we specifically meaning? Um, what are we confessing? So here's uh, the first phrase, I believe. Um, that word in the Greek is pistuo, okay? And it is based off of the a noun, or is a version of the noun pistis for faith. So we say I believe, which is right, that's a good translation, but maybe actually a better way even to say it is I have faith in. Um, that's what we're saying by that, I have faith in. Not, okay, when I say I believe, I'm not saying I think that this happened. I think that this is true. I agree with this statement. It is saying I place my trust in this. I will submit to this. Packer says in this, faith implies both offer and demand. Offer. So when I'm placing my faith in something, I am believing the offer that that thing gives me. Um, but I am also submitting to the demand on it. And different things require a different level of faith, different level of offer and demand. When I say I believe in my car, um, it means I, I like trust in this offer that it can get me from point A to point B. It can get me to work. The demand, in order for that to actually take place, is fairly low. It is sit in the car and drive it, right? But when I say I believe in my or I have faith in my doctor, that is, that he can heal me, that he knows what is right, um, the offer is bigger. He can heal me of cancer. That's a bigger offer than what my car. The demand is also bigger. That is, he's telling me to undergo chemotherapy. And that's going to be hard, but I trust him enough that I will do that. And when we say I have faith in God, the offer is huge. But the demand is as well. He's asking for us to submit our life to those things. So I believe in God the Father. Um, today, the great divide um, when we talk about belief is between atheism and theism. Um, those who believe in God and those who don't. And, and in some ways, in a world where the non-religious sector is growing like crazy, it can sometimes almost be easy, even in the Christian mind, to go, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like Muslim, I'm not like Jewish, but those people are kind of like my cousins. We're kind of like, it's, a, it's almost like us against those who don't want anything to do with God. And in the Bible, it's actually, it's never partly because of the world that it was in, but it's never, the divide is never between those who believe in God and those who don't. It's those who believe in the right version of God, the actual God, and those who believe in a pagan version of him. The dividing line is between right and wrong thinking about God. Um, and, and when the creed was written, that's the same. It was a right belief about God and pagan belief. And that still matters today that we're not just c confessing generically, I believe in God, along with, you know, 90% of the world could make that statement. But we mean a very specific God. We mean specifically God the Father, first member of the Trinity as described in Scripture. When we say Father, what do we mean? Father to, um, to whom? And, and so there are actually three different categories of, of father, uh, of who he is the father over as it is kind of described. Um, first, and there's actually very little said about this. It's, it's there, sort of, but very little in contrast to what a lot of people may think. And that is um, uh, that God is father of the world as a whole. Okay? Uh, that's something that I think we... we we can, we can kind of like to think that God is our father, and we just mean that kind of over everybody. Like, God is everyone's dad. God is everyone's father. Um, like I said, it's there a little bit. In Acts 17, 29, Paul is preaching um, 
on Mars Hill in Athens. He's preaching to the philosopher, and he actually quotes a Greek philosopher and says that we are indeed his offspring. We are from him. And, and he goes and confirms what that philosopher says and says that's true of God. We're all his offspring. Um, but, but usually when it's talking about God being father to the world, it's not so much a familial idea that we are closely connected to him, but that is that we are from him in the same way that a child comes from the father. The, the father is the cause of the child. God is the cause of everyone else, that he caused all of us to exist. Um, but when it gets into the familial relationship, intimacy, there are two levels that God, that the Bible talks about. The first is um, referencing his relationship to God the Son, Jesus. And the second is his relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, that is Israel. And in the New Testament, that is the church. This is in stark contrast to the pagan gods of the Gentile world who were known to be distant and aloof. So they're there. Every now and then they might take like notice of us, but that's probably not a good thing if they take notice of you. It's probably because you made one of them mad or because you have something they want or something like that. Um, that was how they operated. But the Christian confession of God is that he is a father, that he knows us. There's actually... That idea of father actually is also in contrast to the Roman idea of what a father was, to the uh, pater familias is what it was, kind of the, the father of the family. And, and so in every family you had the father who was over, not just in the immediate, but like the grandpa or the great-grandpa, whoever it was, was over like the whole family. And their decision was final, and they made statements, that they, they made um, the decisions about what the family would do, what you were going to do, and what you were going to do, and, and who got what money, and all of these things. And, and they had a decision as to when their children were adults and could be independent to do their thing. And they, had, they, they could make that decision whenever they wanted, when that kid turned 18 or when that man turned 40. Um, they had decision over that. And the father was known as kind of distant but powerful. And, and the Christian view was in contrast to that. In fact, there are some who actually, um, I was reading one guy who thinks when the Apostles' Creed was written, this is what they had in mind when they said God is Father. Not so much that he's close to us, but that he's powerful, that he's other, because that was the Roman idea when the, when the Apostles' Creed was written. And it, and it does seem to have its origins in the city of Rome. Um, and so that's what, that's what it was the idea. And, and God the Son, that's the one they were that they saw themselves as close to. But God the Father was other. He was holy. He was distant. Um, I just don't, I, like, with respect, this is a church historian who said this, and so he's smarter than me. But I just don't see how anyone um, back in the first century or second century could have been reading the Bible and come to that conclusion about God about the fatherhood of God. The Bible confirms over and over again in the fatherhood of God, not just that he is powerful, but he is near to us, that he knows us, that he is close to us. Um, and, and that becomes a very big deal. We'll get into some of those scriptures in a little bit. Here's the next uh, little phrase there, almighty. God the Father, almighty. That word almighty is kind of, you know, a church word that gets thrown around, but when you break it down, literally almighty, all power is his, all might is his. And, and here's actually where we get a glimpse into uh, one of the major purposes of the creeds, um, and that is, that, uh, that is combating heresy. That the Apostles' Creed, as I said, was developed in the second century, and it's actually in the second century when two of the first major heresies that the church ever had to face were on the rise. The first is Gnosticism, and the first is from um, a teacher or heretic by the name of Marcion. Um, I think we call it Marcionism or the Marcionite heresy. I always just talk about Marcion, but I don't really talk about the belief very much. Um, Gnosticism was this idea, if I'm breaking it down super simple, that there's one God who starts everything, kind of the supreme beam, and then over the course of time, over the course of history, that there were these different emanations from him, that you had kind of like God, and then you had a slightly lesser God that kind of emanated from him. Next week, I'm dividing the Johnson boys up into different tables, just so you know. All right, so um, Johnson boys will, will each sit at a different table. So, <laughs> so, um, so that there were these different emanations that came from him, and each one became kind of like a lesser version of them. 
And then when you get down to the very end of him, that you got this kind of like demiurge who is the furthest away from what the real God actually is. And it is this, um, this demiurge person, this kind of lesser sort of half pseudo God that actually created the world as we know it today created all physical things, because one of the major beliefs in Greek philosophy back then was that spiritual things, the soul was beautiful and right and pure, and physical things were dirty and base and kind of gross, and, and this really did creep into the church quickly. When Paul starts writing about battling against the flesh, and they go, oh yeah, the flesh, the flesh is bad, the flesh is icky. And so um, Gnosticism began to teach that there's this God um, that is right and true, and Jesus came and represented him, but then there's this other God of the physical world, and they actually begin to identify a lot of times the God of the Old Testament with that physical God. Because after all, the God of the Old Testament, it says, is the one who created everything. And so he is, he is the one who did all these things. And, and then the Marcionites did the same thing for a different reason. The Marcionites hated, like, everything of the Jewish scriptures, of the Old Testament. And they began to break, and anything Jewish even. They, he didn't like the Gospel of Matthew. He didn't like the Gospel of Mark because those are written by Jews. Um, so he just stuck with Luke and then, like, Paul's writings. And he started saying that the God of the Old Testament is a different God altogether than the one that Jesus shows us. And so what you have in these beliefs is two gods battling it out. The Apostles' Creed says, no, 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 there is one God who is almighty. That means power is not divided between two. All power resides with this one. And then that moves into the second part, actually, which is this, um, that he is the creator of heaven and earth. So this God, who is the father of Jesus Christ, is also creator of heaven and earth. And heaven and earth is the Bible way of saying everything that is. Everything that you see, everything that we have, everything that is, including the physical. Um, as I said, for both the Gnostics and the Marcionites, that, that goes against what they believed um, and, and against the way they taught things. And so the Apostles' Creed is actually, um, some will say, I think, it's, I think it's Packer who will say, if you read through the Apostles' Creed, you will see all the way through um, like backhanded slaps against Gnosticism. It is basically statements against kind of battling against that wherever they go. Um, and so this belief is that he is the one who created all things. He did not just shape existing materials, as was taught about a lot of the pagan gods, that they kind of took what was already there and formed stuff into things. But he, he created the materials and then shaped the materials. Nothing existed before he spoke it into existence. This is the God he says we believe in. Um, so here's what I want to do real quick. I want to take a moment to let you discuss um, just a bit, man. Okay. Um, to discuss, uh, I'm going to skip this first one. Um, let me, let me a- have you answer this question. Which of these truths is more natural for you to think about? God the Father or Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? So for most people... Um, they more naturally gravitate towards one side of those. God, the intimate Father who loves us and who's close to us, um, or um, the powerful God who is over all things, who made all things, but is maybe kind of distant, those kinds of things. So talk about that. Which, um, which of those is more, are you more naturally drawn to? And then, and I don't know if we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. I don't know if you'll have ideas, but if you were to try and um, find biblical support for those three ideas, Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, what texts would you go to to back those things up? Um, Because, and this is important, the creeds have no authority in and of themselves. The creeds are borrowing their authority from the Bible. They are authoritative in as much as they reflect the truth of Scripture, which is our authority. Okay? And so where, where do these truths come from in the scriptures, if you were going to talk about it? So take, talk a little bit about which, which side of this confession do you more naturally gravitate towards, and why is that, do you think? And then, um, and then where would you find biblical support for these? I'm just going to give you about five minutes to do this, and then we're going to close out. So.
All right, one more minute, and then we'll talk about the Bible stuff together.
All right, I want to get started. Um, here's what we'll do. I know I did not give you very much time to talk through Bible stuff, so we're going to talk about it here live here in just a second. So here's what I want to hear from you. Um, where would you go? Like what, what passages would you go to to describe God as Father? Anthony. I would go to 1 Peter 1. Okay. Okay. So what you have in there is you have two of those three things we just talked about, which is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given birth to us through the resurrection of Jesus, who has begotten us. And so because Jesus is Son, um, he has made a way for us to be sons in that. That's good. First Peter 1. Where else would you go to describe God as Father? First John 3, 1. Okay. Yes, it's a, that's a great one. I'll go to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says, Now therefore, if you will need to obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure and possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay. And I don't remember the text, but God says, Israel, you're my firstborn son. Yes. Exodus 4, I think. Exodus yeah, 4, 22. Yeah. Pick that up and say, like, yes. Israel is my firstborn son. Yeah. This is how you know me through my salvation the exile, yeah. the exodus, this is who I am. So that Father and Almighty are paired with God hearing our, our cries and our need for salvation and God's power for yes. our salvation. Yes, it's very interesting. In a lot of times when Israel is, um, when Israel is talked about as the son, um, it is in connection to the exodus. It is in kind of like I gave birth to you when I, in bringing you out of these things a little bit. Those you see that in there a lot, but. That's good. Hey, and hold that First John text. I'm going to have you read that in just a minute, Natalie. First John three one there. Um, anywhere else? Okay. But and and this is super like very relational, father to fatherless. Okay. Yeah. I want to say things also. Yeah. This idea of of yeah caring for the needs of those who who don't have. We don't have someone to care for them, those kinds of things. It's good. Oh, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is, is one of the big ones um, that we have been adopted in. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Um, and that actually starts also in the same way that First Peter does. starts with, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then moves into, so a lot of times you see this. He's the father of Jesus, and then through Jesus lets us be the father, uh, lets him be the father of us as well, and lets us be that. Um, so that's a big one. Let me give you just a few more. So here's, here's God the Father to Israel, Exodus 4, 22 to 23. We won't read them. I'll just, you can write it down and look at it. Hosea 11, 1, which references back, as Max said, to like the prophets, kind of referencing back to the Exodus. Um, Isaiah 1, 2. And Malachi 2.10. Here is in the Trinity to, to, the, to the Son, John 3.35. John 5.18. And this is where it says, And the Jews wanted to kill him all the more because he was claiming God to be his Father, making himself equal with God. Um, Colossians 1.3 is another one of those, praise be to the God and Father, or actually I thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the church, John 20.17 is a really cool thing when he sends, I think it's when he's sending Mary Magdalene, it tells, tells him, go tell my disciples, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Um, so he's been talking this whole time in John about my Father, my Father, my Father. 
And at the resurrection, he says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, that, that Scott referenced. John 1, 12 through 13, to all who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And 1 John 3, 1. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give you these references for Almighty real quick. So here's a great one. Psalm 93, Acts 4, 23 through 31. Go ahead and underline that or star that one and go, go uh, read that one later. It's actually like a prayer and it's a really cool, it's not the first place you go to when you talk about the sovereignty and, and the almighty power of God is the book of Acts, but, but it's a really cool prayer where, where Peter outlines like everything, kind of like you made stuff, you're in control of stuff, you were in control of Jesus dying, you can do signs and wonders. He's just all, like listing all these different things that show God's power and might. Isaiah 40 is a huge one, which we'll read in just a second. Maker of heaven and earth, Genesis 1, obviously, Psalm 104, there are several psalms that are creation psalms. Um, where do you go? Just where do you go to describe creation? God as Creator in the New Testament. First Corinthians eight. First Corinthians eight, which is what? It's for us there is one God. The, 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 yeah, verse eight. Eight six. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and for whom we exist. There it is. That's good. Colossians one. Yep. Which is which is which is what you see a lot in the New Testament is when it talks about God as Creator, it ties up the Son in it real quick. Colossians one. Through whom and for whom all things were created, um, which is similar to John one one. Right, John 1, 1 through 3 through 4. Um, in the beginning, it was God, or it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and God created all things through Him. And nothing that has been created was created without Him, kind of that stuff. And so Jesus gets thrown in real quick in the New Testament. Um, I mentioned before Acts 17, 24 to 29, is Paul preaching about how God made all of us, and so therefore He deserves our worship and our glory. That's Paul preaching in Marzell, and then Romans 1.20, that we ought to know him by the things he created. So lastly, kind of to wrap up the last five, five minutes um, with how is this relevant to us today. Um, and, and what you have in this opening line is two key truths um, that together um, are, are, are critical for our lives and critical for actually the rest of this creed is getting this kind of foundation right together. Um, we have a tendency, I think, to talk about God in vague and general terms and to be a little bit fuzzy on what we mean when we say things like God is our Father and to say things like He is Almighty and, and those things. And, and we also have a tendency, as I just mentioned, to, to, to lean into one side of God or the other, his great love and closeness and intimacy with us, or his great power and might and otherness. And, and the truth is, these are not two things to be held in tension even. Um, it is these two things together that actually strengthen and increase each other, actually. The more you see one, the more you can see the beauty of the other. And, and so um, it's, very, it's, it's critical for us to, to be able to, like I said, I don't even want to say hold intention, to hold together two things that are meant to be together that we see at the beginning of this creed um, and, and to, to not focus on one at the expense of the other, but to see them both in unison. Let me read to you from Isaiah 40 on the power and strength of God. Isaiah 40 this whole chapter is just kind of over and over again, this stuff. But I'm just going to read to you from verses 12 through 15. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh or what man shows him his counsel? 
Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And it would go on, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And this is what Isaiah says about the greatness and the vastness of this God, that all the, all the waters of the earth held in the little hollow palm of his hand, that all the nations are like Dust, they are like less than nothing because he is that big and that powerful and that amazing. And, and when you can see and hold to this truth that he truly is all, that all might, every power that actually exists in the universe starts with him, is his first, and then is given out to anyone or anything else. When you can see that properly and see the bigness, it makes... The, the beauty of this other part so amazing, like 1 John 3.1. Can you read that, Natalie? 1 John 3.1, this is, this is what he says, and you'll know this verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will see has not yet appeared, but we know that as He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Good. Okay. Um, see what kind of love the Father has given to us or lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I was actually listening to a lesson with my wife from Jen Wilkin, her woman crush, um, this last <laughs> week. And, uh, and Jen Wilkin was actually talking about this passage. And she brought up this thing that I have never seen or never heard before. But the word actually, when it says what kind of, is li more literally from what country. Um, and, and, and it had been, I think over time, it kind of had just been adapted to people kind of met what kind of is this. But it's literally, actually, I went and looked just because I was like, man, I never heard that before. So I went and looked. It's the same word in Matthew 9 when Jesus calms the winds and the waves and the disciples go, who is this? In other words, where is this guy from? Or to put it in another way, what in the world? Right? <laughs> And this is what John, that's the same word. So John sits on the boat and says that about Jesus after he watches him calm the winds and the waves. And that same John, um, this is what's crazy too, writing in like the 90s or something like that. So 60 years of life lived following Jesus. And 60 years later, he still looks at the love of God and is able with the same awe that he watched Jesus show his power and calm the storms and the waves with the same, uh, whew, sorry, with the same awe, is able to go, what in the world, when he thinks about that God um, treating us as his kids and, like, loving us that much? And, and that's just, to, again, it's, it's, it's holding those. It's, it's one cool thing to say God is my father and God loves me. But when you read about the God of Isaiah 40, uh, to whom the nations are as nothing and less than nothing, and that God um, loves you, that is a kind of God um, that holds the creed together. That is the kind of God that actually our whole lives, that, that understanding is the foundation for us to live the Christian life because I can trust a God like that. Um, psalm 68 is my second favorite psalm. Um, psalm 68, uh, I'll just read real quick to you and, and, and then we'll be done. Um, if I can find it. Psalm 68 Wait, it might be Psalm 62. Yeah, so, uh, Psalm 62, sorry. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And here's what the psalmist says. Trust in him at all times. But here's what I, here's what I love about this. Uh, what time What time I got? All right, I need to wrap up. Um, what I love about this is I feel like um, three verses later, the psalmist gives you the reason why you can. And here's what he says in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Um, other versions say this. Once God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O God, are loving. 
And, and I've, I've recognized this in my life, that the people I can most trust are the people who, have, who love me enough to have my best interests at heart and who are powerful enough to see that through. And the God described in scriptures and described in the first uh, statement of the Apostles' Creed is a God who desires the best for you, even if you don't know what the best is all the time, desires the best for you, and is sovereign enough and powerful enough to see that through, to see that through to completion. Um, and so that is a truth that you can hold on to um, when your family is going through difficulty, when you are experiencing physical sickness or pain, um, when you are wrestling with your kids who seem to be going wayward, um, when you are struggling with doubts, um, when God is calling you to do something that seems very difficult, the foundation of your obedience is knowing that he loves you and that he is strong and true and powerful and, and that, you can, that the, uh, the offer and the demand of faith in him is high and is totally worth it. And, and that's, that's the God of the creed that we start off with this week. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll jump into it, uh, into the sun next week.